Well, good morning. You can be turning with me in your Bibles to John chapter 20. We finish this chapter this morning. We were here two weeks ago uh, hearing the interchange between our Lord and, and Thomas. And we stopped really right in the middle of this confrontation. We focused on the side of Thomas, uh, what he said to the disciples, what he uh, then saw as the Lord appeared to him and his response to that sight. Uh, but this morning, we look to Jesus' reply to him. And really, there are a couple of sights that we'll get to see this morning. Uh, we're going to first consider Jesus' reply to Thomas in verse 29. Uh, but then we'll also hear the gospel writer, John, as he declares the purpose he had behind writing this entire gospel. That's verses 30 and 31. Uh, and we're going to see them together this morning because there, there's much that ties those two things together. You're going to notice as we read the, the concept of sight and of the sight of signs is going on in both of these things. Uh, let's start by hearing the text together. John chapter 20. I'll start reading at verse 26, and we'll go through verse 31. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And now the beginning of our text this morning. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Two things that we're thinking about together from this text, again, both of them having to do with the sight of signs from God and how that relates to our faith, our saving faith, our believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing that we see, we're just looking specifically at verse 29, he, he tells us some things here about the relationship between sight and belief. And that's really the question that we start with. What is Jesus saying about that relationship? Again, here at the words of verse 29, Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. It's a statement by our Lord that really does demand some careful thought uh, because it can sound like really fundamentally what we're hearing here is a criticism. It can sound like he's criticizing the fact that Thomas has seen and then believed. But I hope when I even put it like that, in light of what we've seen here in the last few weeks in John, you can detect what would be the problem with reading it that way. Um, 
What's very evident in all four of the Gospels, as they describe Jesus' appearance to the disciples, is that the sight of him was intended by him to result in their belief. I think it is possible that we're hearing something of a correction here in verse 29, but we need to recognize that if there's a correction, it's a particular correction to Thomas directly. It's not a correction against the phenomenon of seeing and then believing, seeing and then drawing the conclusions that are proper from that sight and believing. Jesus is the one who is appearing to them, showing them his hands and his side. What are they supposed to do with that sight? Well, they're supposed to believe. It's exactly what we heard Jesus tell Thomas that he needed to do the last time we were in this passage. The correction to Thomas that might be in here could be a correction relating to the way that Thomas made such demands. You remember what he said to the other disciples? Uh, and the way that he remained so skeptical when he heard their claims, their confident, hopeful report. And you remember we saw that he, he reacted to them in the way that he did, despite everything he had already seen and heard from the Lord. He, had demand, he was demanding here yet further proof before he would even consider what seemed to be such a ridiculous notion to him. A correction against that might be present here in verse 29, or at least that might be a way that Thomas might have been impacted by these words. There might have been conviction there. However, more important is to be clear about what Jesus is not criticizing here. He is not talking about the concept itself of seeing and then believing as something that is worthy of condemnation, something that is deficient. That's not a critique that's here. One man that describes this really well is Herman Ritterboss. Listen to what he wrote about this. He said, some view this blessing, he's talking about verse 29, the end of it, blessed are those who do not see and believe, who have not seen and believe. He says, some view this blessing as a timeless statement. And this is how he would describe it. Faith need not or even ought not be based on sight. This is then said to be directed against Thomas, whose faith did rest on sight and was therefore inferior to that of others. Now he's going to give a different suggestion. He says, but Jesus is speaking here of a transition that will come into effect from this point on. From now on, at least after Jesus' final departure to the Father, people will have to believe without seeing simply on the basis of the apostles' witness. And such people, the church of the future, Jesus addresses here, over Thomas's head, as it, as it were, with his last word, a beatitude for them all, end quote, a blessing pronounced on all of those that he's looking toward. And I think that describes well the distinction that we need to notice here in what Jesus is saying to Thomas. It's clear even from what he says directly here in verse 29 that there is a distinction that's going to exist. There are going to be those whose faith arose out of sight that God provided them. God has allowed and ordained for eyewitnesses in the presence of this redemptive work that's coming to us in the person of his son. There are going to be those who are given sight and whose faith then is coming as a direct relationship there. And there are going to be those whose faith arose not from receiving sight, but instead from receiving something else. 
instead from receiving authoritative revelation that is passed down to them. Even in the lifetime of the apostles, they were writing to a people who were in that second boat. You think of what Peter writes to his audience in 1 Peter 1, verses 8 and 9. He says to them, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. He's describing those in that second boat. And compared to those in that boat, you have those in the first boat. You have eyewitnesses. Those whose path, by God's plan, their path to saving faith in Christ was made to include sight of these things. And at its heart, of course, sight of the person upon whom our faith is based. Of course, in one way, that group includes a large number of individuals. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 mentions more than 500 eyewitnesses to the resurrected Christ. So that's the case. But in a more direct and specific way, the men who were given the authority that we heard about last time, you remember verse 23, what Jesus says to these now apostles, in a specific way, those men given that authority, they emphasize again and again their status as eyewitnesses to the things that they are handing down and testifying to. We referenced Peter just before. Here, his words in 2 Peter 1, starting at verse 16. This is a part of what he is saying as he's reminding them of what they have been given. He says, For we, we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, quote, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Peter makes that emphasis. John, in his first epistle, makes the same emphasis. He opens his letter of 1 John using the first person plural, we, emphasizing that his message is really the collective testimony of the apostles. Let me read the first three verses of that letter. The guys and gals in the youth group will be very familiar with these words. He wrote, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. You hear this emphasis. There's something. There is a boat that they are in that we are not in. They were eyewitnesses to these things. They write about things that they saw and heard and touched. And verse 29 here is giving us an expectation about how God's people are going to receive this testimony. It gives us the reality of God's plan that having demonstrated the person and claims of Christ by his presence on earth, by his signs innumerable, as we're going to see, he then calls his people to receive the testimony handed down by 
the apostles. Testimony, which of course includes testimony of their recounting their sight of these signs. And when we read them tell us about the things they saw and experienced in Holy Scripture, those things do indeed have an impact on us. They are encouraging to us in our confidence, in our awe, as we hear these eyewitness reports. They're good and helpful to us. But what do they not do? You notice they do not lead us then to turn and demand to see the same sights ourselves in order to submit. We have been given the authoritative, inerrant, and now complete canon of divine revelation. It's interesting, we've mentioned Peter a couple of times. It's interesting to remember that even Peter, and even while he's describing his eyewitness experiences of Christ, compares those experiences to what he calls, in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, the more sure prophetic word. That idea brings to mind a very powerful illustration that Christ provided for us in a parable in Luke 16. I would have you keep your finger here, but go with me for just a moment over to Luke 16. Let's remember this together. There's a few parables in that chapter. We're looking at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is a story he tells about two men that have died. One of them, Lazarus, is in the comfort of the father, but the rich man is suffering in judgment. That's the setting here. We're going to start reading at verse 27. What's happened is the rich man has asked Father Abraham in this parable to send Lazarus back from the dead to warn his brothers who are still on earth. Listen to how this plays out, beginning at verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, Moses and the prophets is one of the shorthand ways to refer to the entire Old Testament canon. He's referring to, at that point, the totality that they had received of Scripture, of God's direct revelation to us, a special revelation. But what do you hear there in that account about the place of supernatural revelation? In reply to his request to send a dead man back to life to convince his brothers, the rich man gets this reply. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them, or let them listen to them. It sounds all by itself so harsh, doesn't it? So uncaring. But of course, it's not uncaring at all. It's a statement that is made that makes perfect sense in light of the fullness of reality of the situation. And we get that context in verse 31. That reply is not uncaring if verse 31 is telling us something true about us. Verse 31, he says, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. 
This is a profound revelation about us in our fallenness, in our rebellion against God. The way that God draws dead people back to life is by speaking. He calls his people to life, and they hear his voice, and they come to him. You remember Jesus said back in John 10, 26, to the opposition, the unbelieving crowd there, the reason you do not believe is that you are not of my sheep. And remember, they had just asked him, why are you keeping us in suspense? If you're the Christ, just tell us. And he said, I did tell you, and you do not believe. And then he said that. The reason you do not believe is that you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Jesus is saying in this parable in Luke 16, if they have not been given ears to hear as they are confronted with God's word, it won't matter what they see. Certainly, if they see a dead man rise from the dead, they will do what all the people did at all of the miracles. They will marvel at what they have just seen. But they will not then draw the conclusions of belief that are proper to such a sight. They will still, in their wonder at this thing they've seen, still they will refuse to draw conclusions of worship and submission. And so we see through this that though the scriptural testimony was received at the hands of those who saw with their eyes, touched with their hands, 1 John 1 language, what happens then is that those men who have given those, who have received those sights, simply then join the stream of God's revelation given to his people through inspired scripture. This is as it has always been. There are always those who have been given to see and then revealed to us what God has shown. And the normative experience of God's people throughout time is to hear God's voice through his revelation and to believe him. And Jesus says here to those who receive him and his word humbly in faith without having been given sights to see. He says of them, they are blessed. They are blessed. Now take this as we move into the second sight here this morning, verses 30 and 31, because he's going to, John now is going to do a couple of things at once. He's going to state for us, this is, this is a part of the reason that I'm writing this gospel. But in so doing, he's going to continue to, te to teach us more about how this works. Notice again what we hear, verse 30. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. What we want to do here is, is first stop and just notice the flow he's taking us through here. The, the progression, there are, it seems to me there are four, uh, four moments of progression that he leads us through here. And it's so instructive to us to watch these. There are four concepts. He moves from signs to scripture to belief to life. We're just going to walk through these and think about them one at a time. Signs to scripture to belief to life. Let's think about signs here. We're hearing all morning, about signs that are being provided. Let's think about signs. Jesus performed signs, it says. In fact, how many signs did he perform? 
It says he performed many signs, many others, besides what's written in this book. We have that restated another way, probably on the same page you have open to there. If you look at the last verse in the Gospel of John, John 21, 25, we notice what's said there. He, he closes like this. Now, there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now, one thing that tells us, too, is he's not only even describing the signs that he chose to record for us in the Gospel of John. I mean, that's the point that he's saying here. He's chosen these to write down. But it's not as if the, four, the joint testimony of the four Gospels has captured all of the signs that Jesus performed. It's impossible to do so here. They've clearly not purposed to do that and have not done that. So there remains this apparently huge number of other signs that Jesus performed in his life that were not performed for the purpose of our benefit. They were not performed that they might then be recorded. It, it sort of begs an interesting question. What are the, what's the purpose of those signs? Why is he bothering to perform any signs that are not going to be recorded in Scripture? One of the ways we have to get at this sort of a question, or I think one of the opportunities this provides us, is to consider again the dynamic that's happening when Jesus Christ enters this world. Jesus, the God-man, God himself incarnate. This is, this is a fascinating and, and mysterious thing that's happening. But I think we can back up and, and, and say some things about this. Consider, for example, the difference between when a prophet speaks and reveals, is used to reveal in Scripture, and compared to when God himself shows up on the page and addresses a human being. Think about the differences in those two experiences. When, when we see God himself speak in the Bible, bring revelation directly. You may be, there's a number of options that you might be having in mind right now of the kinds of times that that happened. Those are not moments in which men then ask for a sign, are they? That individual is generally quite occupied, trying to remain conscious. They're generally quite sure that they're about to die. That's what's going on in that person. They know. They do not need a sign. God appears to Isaiah in a vision, and Isaiah does not say, oh, this is very hopeful and interesting. Here are my tests. Could you please authenticate your, your identity for me before we proceed? That's not what Isaiah does. Isaiah says, I am ruined. I'm a man of unclean lips. I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the king. There's no need for a sign there. Now compare that to the coming, the sending of human prophets, through whom God so often has brought revelation. The situation is very different, isn't it? Because there are such things as false prophets out there in the world. And so a prophet did need to provide a sign to prove himself. In fact, God commanded it. He commanded that the people demand a sign to test prophets, to confirm their genuineness, their validity. So you have Deuteronomy 13. Does this prophet, does his word align with previous revelation that God has given. 
You have Deuteronomy 18. Can, will this prophet perform a sign before the people that is then proven to, to come to pass? If it doesn't, they are to pay no attention to that man. He's to be rejected. This is the case of human prophets. And again, herein lies the utter uniqueness of the situation when Jesus Christ comes onto the scene. Because in Christ, you have both of those things happening at once. Jesus is God with us. He is Emmanuel. God dwelling among us. John says in John 1, we beheld his glory. Jesus said in John 10.25, the works I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. As he comes and reveals, God is speaking to man. There's immediate accountability there. And yet, in the same way, at the same time, Jesus is God incarnate. God taken to himself true human form. And therefore, Jesus then coming as a prophet. And not a prophet, but in fact, the prophet. The very one that Moses himself prophesied would come after him and must be listened to. But in that capacity, Christ in his office of prophet, it was right and necessary for him to supply signs confirming his message. And what we find in John's two descriptions here of the sheer amount of signs performed by our Lord, it makes sense in light of Jesus as the God-man everywhere he went. Everything he said was a profound divine claim. And through signs then, he bore witness to the truth of his message everywhere he went. So there is a proper authentication that's at work in the signs that Jesus offered. He's not simply doing it for the benefit of revelation. He's also doing it to demonstrate who he is and that he must be listened to. And so as John is leading to a conclusion here about belief and reception of this man, it's fitting that he begin by mentioning these signs. Now hopefully you're still in John 20, and we're noticing this progression. Uh, the first word there was signs. The second, the one that that leads to then, is the word scripture. Notice scripture. He moves from all the signs of Jesus to a particular group of them. What's the particular group he then gets to? He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. Some of those many signs, John has been led by the Holy Spirit to record for us, to write down for our benefit. We don't need the accounting of every single sign that Christ ever performed. We have been given sufficient accounting of what Jesus said and did, and that sufficient accounting is found in what God's people have been provided. It's found in the text of Holy Scripture. Now we're saying it's sufficient. Sufficient for what? Sufficient for life and godliness. Sufficient to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, what he has recorded, what, the, what those who penned the whole of Scripture have recorded for us, is sufficient for us to stand on in our belief. So this is how it leads from signs to Scripture, then to belief. He says, notice again, verse 31, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. 
I imagine that we all know the comfort that, I, that I'm thinking of here. There's a lot of potential examples of this kind of thing, but you know the, the feeling, how anxious it is, how hard a season it is when you're wrestling with uh, a concept or a question that is, is difficult beyond you, but it's terribly significant. You need to know what to do with this, and the consequences are weighty, and you feel so insufficient. You know that anxiety? I think especially of the, the season that we're in as parents and having to make choices for our children in times, and you see the, the, uh, just the weight of those things. It is so comforting to be in a moment like that and to have some trusted authority come and say, look, this is all you need to understand. This is what you need to know and act on. Trust me. You're right to take this part of this thing and be satisfied with it. You don't need to do any more Google searches. This, this is what you need to draw a conclusion based on. And if you draw a conclusion based on this, you are acting wisely. You're doing what is good. The Apostle John, as he is being led along by the Holy Spirit, said to us, these signs have been written down, and the proper result of reading them is that you believe. I wonder, I wonder if you're one who knows the very common and painful experience in your, in your walk with the Lord of, of persistent doubt about your faith. It's not an uncommon battle, is it? Doubts. Usually in that kind of a wrestling, a long-term wrestling, there's a notion in my head of a kind of, a kind of certainty that I ought to have. How can I be sure? And if that's you, I would say to you, listen to what you're being invited to here, as John says this. Listen to what's being offered to you in verse 31. If you will vacate the throne, vacate the position that always needs one more sign, and instead will give way to the authority of God's revealed word, what he says to us is, you have in fact found something worthy of ending that search and believing. And that's what you're being invited to do here, to believe. And there's a way for us to rightly say that towards unbelievers, to call them to stop their wrestling, stop their striving, and to rest on the finished work of Jesus Christ revealed to us in God's word. But just as we've seen with Thomas, there's a way for us to say this to each other as believers. Even, even by way of reminder of things we've known and have forgotten in this season. We are right to be satisfied with what he has given us in his word and to just stop, to, to entrust ourselves to him. This is not a call to blind faith. We saw that with Thomas. My goodness, how much evidence needed to be provided. And he said to Thomas, stop being unbelieving in your posture. Believe. It is a decision to trust. It's a decision to trust somebody else's authority, somebody else's wisdom and trustworthiness, to entrust ourselves to him 
based on the authority that resides in his word. Now keep looking at the passage. What is it that we're being called to believe here? You see it there. Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. It's helpful to me to, to understand that those two titles, there's, there's something of an appositive going on there. There's something repetitive there. That Son of God is the messianic title of kingship. It's, it is a head nod, not so much to Jesus' divinity, but to his humanity. Christ as the king of the line of David, the anointed one of God. The Christ is the anointed one. That whole designation is about a God-sent Savior that God's people had been waiting for, hoping in. They'd been waiting for the fulfillment of all of the promises of the Old Testament that had come to rest on David and on David's future descendant. And John says here, I've written these things, and the right end of reading these things is that you would come to a conclusion. You would believe that the Christ, the Messiah, is Jesus of Nazareth. There's your, con your conclusion to draw. Choose to end the search. This is him. He has come. He's the only one who has been promised and who will be given. He's come. He's come to die for sinners. He's come to pay an unpayable ransom. He's come to take the power and penalty of sin from men and women and children and to remove it from them as far as the east is from the west. This is what he's come to do. Believe that this Jesus is the Christ. He said back in John 6, 29, Jesus was asked the question, what shall we do to be working the works of God? And Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. You, know what, you want to know what work God requires? Draw this conclusion. Believe in him whom he has sent. Signs lead to scripture, which leads to belief, saving faith. And what is the result then? Notice he doesn't even end there. John doesn't even end there. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life. In his name. This is the offer of the gospel. The offer is to be made alive forever with the life giver himself. It's the offer of being, in fact, brought into the great chain, unbreakable chain of salvation, the one that Paul famously described in Romans 8. You remember these words? For those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. He looks from eternity past into the future, consummation of all things. And he says, God is at work from beginning to end. And John declares here, the great truth that 1,500 years later, Martin Luther would declare to be the article on which the church stands or falls. This declaration of justification by faith alone. And as John is making that connection here, 
when he says that by believing you may have life in his name. As he makes that connection, he joins in the refrain of all of the testimony of the scriptures. He's got to elbow his way in there past Paul, who cannot stop emphasizing that in his letters. Romans 3.28, we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Romans 4.5, but to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Romans 5.1, therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 10.4, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Galatians 2.16, Nevertheless, knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Christ Jesus, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law, since by the works of the law no flesh shall be justified. Galatians 3.24, therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. Ephesians 2.8-9, by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works lest any man should boast. Last one I'll give you, Philippians 3.9, his prayer is that we may be found in him. And he's speaking of himself. In, as an example, he says, not having a righteousness of my own, derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness which comes from God on the basis of, guess what? Faith. This glorious obsession of Paul, John taps into and joins in. And having heard it named there so many times as I rattle through those, I would have us end our time here by reflecting on some of what we see in those things and especially remembering three descriptions of this belief, this belief that leads to life, this saving faith. Three descriptions as we close. Number one, because belief is synonymous to the idea of faith, we're helped to define it by Hebrews 11 verse 1. Let me re remind you of what that says. Blake read it for us earlier. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. In a sense, this is so key to helping us even understand those two boats earlier, those who were given sights to see and those who are not, who are given instead divine revelation. Because one thing brings them both together, both boats in the same boat. Even those who saw sights, what did they have to do? They had to choose to trust in something they did not see. Many saw and marveled at what they saw and perished in their sin. Those who were saved were given eyes to see past what they had shown, to see what God was revealing. You receive that by faith. Both boats are in the same boat. But in particular in Hebrews 11, I mean, the words I would hold out are the words assurance and conviction. It says faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. This faith that saves, it is convictional. That's what we've seen 
here, isn't it? It's the faith that Jesus has called on Thomas to exercise. A faith that chooses to end the inner conversation because you have entrusted yourself entirely to the authority of his revealed word. You are convinced. This is the element that we often find so difficult, this conviction. You've known it, I'm sure. It can be elusive at times. The part that we could call by the words assurance or conviction. It's, the, it's what the man cried out about in Mark 9, 24. He responded to Jesus, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Don't we look to that account for encouragement and comfort, the gentleness, the patience of our Lord, but also for confirmation. This, this is the kind of person that we are. We will struggle like this. We're all there at times. And what a comfort to see our Lord bearing patiently with his people when they waver. But nonetheless, it is the, it is the description of Hebrews 11. This is what we strive for. We pursue that settled peace that has come from the surrendering to his authority. So that's the first thing, to remember that this belief corresponds to a faith characterized by assurance and conviction. Secondly, remember that it's not just equated with the word faith, but with the idea of saving faith, belief and saving faith, which is simply to say, remember what we have seen this morning, that we are justified by faith alone. It completes both sides of the celebration we read from Peter in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. You remember he said, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then he ended like this, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. The second thing to remember then is this, it's that it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It is not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Third and final description that I would remind us of really is the very one given us here by John. When he said, by believing you have life in his name. That word life is tapping into quite a biblical theme. This is a belief, a saving faith, that enlivens the one who has been given it. It's a living faith. It's not a dead faith. There are many who have said it, I think, that in terms of the sort of catchphrase I'll read here, I think John Calvin might have said it first. This is what he wrote. As often as we mention faith alone in this question, we are not thinking of a dead faith which worketh not by love, but holding faith to be the only cause of justification. That's the point of faith alone. And then he says, it is therefore faith alone which justifies, and yet the faith which justifies is not alone. Just as it is the heat, this is a great comparison, just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth, and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly joined with light. John says, by believing, you have life in his name. He came to give us life and to give it abundantly, John 10.10. And a good amount, men, of the men's time together this coming weekend is going to deal with that very reality of how 
We are taught to think about this life that is ours through faith as we read about it in Scripture. But my friends, as we conclude this morning, I would ask you to just stand back with me here. We've only looked at these three verses. But stand back and look at what we've read. And in fact, look a little bit farther than this morning. We have spent a long time working through John's gospel, haven't we? And he just told us here this morning, this is why I've done all of this. This is why I wrote the things that I wrote. It was so that you might be settled in the conviction that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that by seeing that and believing, by believing in his name, that you may have life everlasting. This is what the Christian life, this is what your Christian life is all about. It's not about finding relief from my problems at work or relief from my back pain. It is about the answer to the question, how can I come into life? How can I live with God forever in his peace, knowing his favor? And what we have found, is that the answer to that question is a name. It is Jesus Christ of Nazareth. By faith in him alone will we live with God forever, free of our sin, free of all that rightly separates us from this great and holy and righteous God, and free of it not because we've worked it off, free of it because he was willing to take the penalty of it himself, and to suffer in our place? The answer to the question is Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. God, we are your people by sheer grace. We have been gathered here by you, we who have come to know you by faith in your Son, given to us as a gift. And our prayer really is what we sang together this morning. Our prayer is, more more love, O Christ, to Thee. God, we desire to love Your Son more. He rescued us from the domain of darkness. He brought us into His kingdom where we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And we, as Your people, we ask of You this morning, would You grant it to us to so live by this faith, this convictional, assured faith, that we are emboldened in our battles against sin, that we are made content with the path that you've chosen for us through this life. God, grant us contentment with what you will bring. Because we know that you are wise and we know that you're working all things, even all things in our lives, for your good, for our good, and for your glory. And we do cry out with that man, help our unbelief. Please rescue us, Father, from the seasons when our faith is weak. I pray, Lord, for us as a church body here, that you would bless our efforts to strengthen and encourage each other when those seasons come. Teach us how to be useful, willing instruments in our Redeemer's hands and cause us to remember that if we know If we know the gospel of your love, we we do have encouragement and comfort to give to each other when there's suffering. We have life 
to share with each other. Because you've given us life. We have that life because you have been generous to us. And we are grateful. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name do we pray. Amen.